Take your Bible, turn to the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. We're going to be in chapter 2 specifically. I'm going to start reading, though, in chapter 1, verse 17. UESV, that's a paragraph break. That's where we're going to start. This is John seeing Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give life and light again to our hearts. You are the Lord of light. And we thank you that you are not bound by uh, human economics. We, we constantly labor in scarcity. There is no scarcity with you. And so we ask that you would give generously as we come to your word. For Christ's sake, amen. I want you to think about a question. A little imaginary thing, I guess. Think about if Jesus, sitting in heaven, took two of his angels and brought them in front of him. And you know, angels, magnificent creatures of fire, they do have in some form, at least for a season, we don't know all of the details, God has not given them, but the ability to appear human for at least a little while. And let's say Jesus took his two angels and said, guys, fellas, next Sunday, I want you to go to Christ Ridge and worship there. Don't tell them who you are. Don't tell them that you're angels from glory. Afterward, come back and I want you to report on how Christ Ridge is doing. What would they say? 
ever thought about that? I mean, so this is the type of question that I assume most of you don't think about, but it's the type of question that I like, you know, sometimes don't sleep at night because I think about it. You know, what would they say when they get back to glory? Would they say, oh, they were lovely people? I I assume they would. They were really friendly and welcoming. I hope that's what they say. The singing, oh, it's lovely singing. It's not as lovely as ours in heaven, but it'll do. You know, would they have said, well, you know what, Jesus, they're really bad at that. I, I just love the thought, like the thought process. How would, how would Jesus see the church? How would the angels report that to him? It's appropriate to think those kind of thoughts because, in essence, we're going to go through the seven letters here over the next seven weeks or so. The seven letters to the church, we get that sort of kind of interaction between Christ and his people where he explains to them how he sees them. Now, I guess it's important to kind of start to say, this is not seeing the churches kind of in need of salvation pre-conversion. And these are conversations that take place after the Lord has redeemed them for a largely converted body thinking through a corporate church. And again, being honest with you, as I've been preparing for the church here in Ephesus, it's been hard not to think about the American church. As the, I think the similarities run a bit more deep than I would like to admit. Maybe even think a little bit more closely about the PCA as a whole. The Presbyterian church as we think about kind of what Jesus thinks about his church. What does Jesus think about this portion of the church? You go, well, okay, well, I mean, Michael, this wasn't written to us, obviously. It was written to Ephesus. I mean, it applies to them, right? (laughs) Well, no, there's actually a little bit of a key kind of helping us interpret this at the end. I've been trying to do this every sermon in Revelation to help us with the interpretive process because Revelation can read a little bit wacky if you don't know how to interpret it. Uh, At the very end, John gives us, Jesus gives us a very clear kind of principle to understand how to interpret all of the letters to the various churches in verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you go, well, that doesn't, I mean, I'm familiar with the phrase, but that doesn't mean a great deal to me. Yes, but that's because we do not know our Bibles as well as we should. Because every time that phrase is used in the scriptures, it's used in one of two ways. It's either used in the Old Testament for a prophecy of impending judgment Or it's used in the New Testament in connection to a parable. And parables are a very specific genre of Scripture. Jesus even tells us why he uses them. Remember this, the disciples come and say, Jesus, why do you use parables? And he says, I use them specifically so the pagans won't understand. I thought Jesus was the greatest preacher ever. Everybody understood him always, all the time. I mean, I can go to the Christian bookstore and there's a thousand different books on how to preach like Jesus. Well, no, his primary method of teaching in parables was it's basically the story form of a very complicated inside joke. That if you know Jesus, you can hear a parable and understand its meaning. But if you're on the outside, it doesn't make sense. So here you have in these seven 
letters to the churches, giant inside conversations for the church that's designed to be understood by the church, and it even lets us know what's coming in the conversation. Not eternal judgment, not eternal damnation, but instead fatherly discipline. And I'll be honest with you, as we kind of have any sort of conversation about discipline uh, and the father disciplining those that he loves, I just go ahead and tip my hand to you as a pastor so you know where I'm coming from. I am an immense coward when it comes to this. Now, I, I will say this the more spiritual sounding way. I like to learn the easy way. That's the the spiritual way to say it. I like to learn the easy way, meaning I prefer to listen to God's word than get spanked by God's word. I'm the person who I I don't feel the need to put my hand on the stove to find out that it will actually burn me. So when we go through these letters and having conversation about God disciplining his church and potentially disciplining this church. I'm going to go ahead and be upfront with you. My mechanism is, let's not walk that path, please. I know God loves us. He's going to take care of us. I don't feel the need to find out what a divine spanking feels like. We go, okay, so why are you thinking about Christ Ridge and thinking about the American church in light of the Ephesian church? Well, if Ephesus, the Ephesian church, is a really special church in church history. You remember, if you've kind of read Acts and you remember your Bible, it's planted largely by Paul. There's others involved, at which point he plants it, runs into kind of some difficulties, pastors it off and on for a season. But even when you find out when he's getting ready to go back to Rome to die, he has the most loving and tender bond with the Ephesian church. I mean, it grieves him the idea of not seeing the Ephesian church again. But he doesn't have to worry because when Paul is taken away, he gives the church to their new pastor, Timothy. Wow, book of the Bible written to him. (laughs) Pretty good. And after Timothy leaves, at some point along the way, we don't know exactly the transition that happens afterwards, but then John pastors the church. So here, Revelation, this is 95, 96 uh, AD. The church was planted around 60 to 64 AD. You're looking in 35 years of church history. They've had Paul, Timothy, and John pastor it. That is, I would suggest, a very excellent history of pastors. Just going to go out on a limb there. It also is an interesting place in terms of town because it's got a major thoroughfare coming from the east. So if any sort of trade went through Ephesus, so they were immensely wealthy and they were, as often is the case with immensely wealthy places, uh, immensely pagan, (laughs) immensely pagan. To the point where you again remember when the church was planted, you had the whole riot in Artemis of the Ephesians because they had a massive temple that at its height had a thousand different temple prostitutes working at any given moment. That is a lot of people. That is a lot of sin. That is a very pagan town. So you have this really kind of interesting conundrum of a a church that is blessed, that is rich in gifts, that is rich in uh, being pastored. And again, think about Paul's relationship with them. You have Galatian, that letter's angry. The Corinthian letter, it's so angry. 2 Corinthians, so angry. He distracts himself and interrupts himself because he's like having a panic attack. He's so mad. The letter to Ephesus is sweet and tender, talking about their unity, talking about their love, talking about God's kindness to them. 
I'm thinking, thinking through me, it's like, wow, this sounds so much like the American church. We have the greatest number of excellent books about Christianity published in human history. Saints today have access to more holy resources than any person in human history. Immense wealth flowing everywhere around us. And paganism in a way that is staggering. Whew. I've struggled, I'll be honest, preparing this all week because it's hit so unbearably close to home. Okay, well, so what does Jesus say to this church uh, that is, in many ways, I think, structured similarly to the uh, Presbyterian-type church? What does Jesus say to them? Well, it starts with a really cool point. I know what's going on. Jesus explains to them in verse 2, I know what's happening in your church. (laughs) Oh, no, Michael's opening illustration breaks down. (laughs) He doesn't have to send angels because he's already here. He doesn't have to have messengers come and report to him. He already knows. He knows about all of the inner workings of the Ephesian church. He knows all of the inner workings of the Christ Ridge church. He knows the church. And interestingly, here in verses 2 and 3, he knows them and he immediately praises them for two things that I think anybody would be like, right on. If Jesus says, I've done a good job with this, man, I'm going to chalk that up as a win, right? A victory. First, I know your work. I know your toil. I know how hard you've done in your patient endurance. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I mean, what a wonderful compliment from the man who died on the cross, underwent the entirety of the wrath of God on the cross. Here is a person who knows suffering unlike any other human in human history, past, present, or future, and the one who knows suffering better than anyone else goes, look, I know you've been fighting the good fight. I know you've been trying to bear up under difficulty and you've done good. I know you are enduring patiently. All right. Woo, that's encouraging, right? To, to, to acknowledge the difficulty that some in our midst might have. Again, we know from Ephesus, we know there were riots. We know there were all kinds of problems that they had financial ramifications, that they had uh, political consequences and guys were imprisoned and all kinds of difficulties like that. I just love that you have here King Jesus acknowledging that he understands the difficulty that the saints go through. Now, some of us, we have very easy lives, very easy marriages, very easy parenting, very easy jobs. Some of us do not. And I love that here you have the Lord Jesus acknowledging the effort that you spend in his service. For those of you, I mean, you think about those secret victories that you hide in your heart that you know you're victorious in, but no one else knows. 
like that time that you really wanted to tear that person's head off, but you bit your tongue to the point that it bled, and you're like, I didn't say it! I didn't say it! And you walk away, and you're like, I shouldn't have thought it in the first place, but can we just rejoice that I didn't say that hateful thing? (laughs) Or that time that you forgot that person, that you really, you forgave that person that you, you maybe shouldn't have or at least you thought you shouldn't have. You had that deep-seated kind of hate toward them, maybe. And nobody knows the extent of how angry you were at them. And I love the Lord Jesus here saying, look, I know the works you've done. I know the energy you've expended. I know how hard you've worked to bear patiently. And for some of us, that's really encouraging. For other of us, that's maybe a little bit more convicting because <laughs> he knows how hard we don't work. But no, uh, that's on you. You need to sort that one out. I love that. I also love the second part of what he, is the first part, I guess, here in verse 2, what else he blesses them for is how hard they've worked at understanding the truth. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tried to stay pure in your activity and in your thinking. And even further, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. And again, we hear that and go, well, that's, that's kind of silly. I mean, well, actually, back up. If you don't have God's word written, understanding who to trust and who not to trust is a really big deal. And if you're a podunk, middle-of-nowhere sort of city that's not going to draw any sort of fame or notoriety, well, it might be a little easier because you're not going to get that many wackos to come through. Problem is, this is Ephesus. And when Paul's gone, who's coming? And when Timothy's gone, who's coming? And what they've had happen is a series of men coming in and saying, yes, I know Paul was an apostle. I am too. You listen to him. You should listen to me too and give me all your money. Or other crazy things. And here Jesus is praising them for saying, look, you guys have done well. You've listened to the right voice. You've listened to my voice. You haven't listened to these false teachers. When they've come in and told you crazy things, you didn't believe them. You listened for what you were supposed to listen for. You listen for me. Even verse 6, you have him saying, I love this. Jesus says, you hate the Nicolaitans. That's a good thing because I hate them too. False teachers of a category we don't fully understand. It's probably they were saying that the body is bad and you can do all kinds of sorts of things with your body because it doesn't really matter. Only the spirit is important. But Jesus says he hates them. And you know what? Uh, He's glad that the Ephesian church hates them too. Noticing hate's not an evil thing uh, when it's turned on the right uh, ends. The amazing thing here, though, is that you have Jesus praising them for how well they have suffered, and you have Jesus praising them for understanding the truth and clinging to it and being connected to it, but that's not enough. You still have fatherly discipline that's coming. Again, this is where I I worry, again, thinking through the American church and certainly thinking for this portion of his church to be concerned.
that we think maybe this is enough, that, that this is what it means to be a healthy church. It means, you know, what's the target for a successful church? What's the target for a healthy church? Well, it's just simply knowing the right thing and suffering well. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, if my tombstone said he knew the right thing and he suffered well, that wouldn't be the worst of things. The problem is what follows is that you have Jesus saying, this I have against you, words I never ever want to hear. Again, this is delivered to a church, it's delivered to a church that I believe Jesus loves. It's fatherly discipline and he's instructing them, you are still not finished as a product yet. This I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. We talked about this in Sunday school. Grammar only gives us answers. There's, I mean, uh, options. There's actually a challenge here because Jesus tells us that they've lost their first love, but he doesn't tell us what their love was. What did they love that they stopped loving? Again, most of us kind of immediately go, well, it means they don't love Jesus the way they used to. Funny enough, throughout church history, that has not been the number one reading here. Throughout church history, the number one reading is that they stopped loving their neighbors the way they're supposed to. That's the number one most common reading in church history. I don't think that's actually the correct answer, but it's the most common one. Certainly option from the grammar. I think actually what's happening here is illustrated more carefully if you look at the beginning and the end by how Jesus describes himself. I think that's the key to understanding the discipline that's taking place is Jesus explains to them his function in the church. Every one of these letters has a basic kind of template that they follow. Jesus tells a key aspect of who he is. He tells them some things they probably do well. He tells them something they're not doing well. He tells them how to fix it and then highlights kind of back at the end who he is. And here he's explained something very important about himself at the beginning. He is, that's why we started reading the previous section, he's the one with the stars in his hand with the golden lampstands behind him. And if you remember the sermon from last week, he's highlighting that he is the priest in the heavenly temple. He is the one who is serving as a priest in heaven, and he is actively, currently walking amongst the churches. It's why he can say, I know what you're doing. It's because he's still here. He hasn't left. He's not gone. He knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. He knows your temptation. He knows your difficulty. He knows how hard it is for you to sleep. He knows who you are. But the interesting thing here is how he continues to describe himself is he's effectively not just highlighting that he's a priest, but he is effectively using kind of today's terms. He's the janitor of the heavenly temple. He's the one who's traveling through the temple, taking care of all of the various things that have to happen. When you think about what we have for kind of janitorial diagonal duties here, you have to get the trash out so that we don't have critters in the building. You have to get the heating and air correct so that it's not 62 when the first service starts and 148 by the time the second one ends. You have to figure out how to get the lights to operate, make sure if the bulb burns out to replace the bulb or to replace the ballast. You have to make sure that the building is operating correctly. And here you have Jesus as he walks through the temple saying, I have a problem. 
one of my churches, the lamp keeps flickering and going out. I have one that's not lighting the way that it's supposed to. And if you have in your house a light bulb that continues to flicker and sometimes just doesn't turn on, what do you do? You replace the light bulb. You're done with that light bulb. It's not operating the way it's supposed to operate, so it's gone. Here you have Jesus traveling through the heavenly temple saying, one of my churches is not lighting the way that it's supposed to light. And it's time for them to correct that. Or, as fatherly discipline, I will remove their lampstand. I will replace the light bulb. That's harsh. Well, I think there's actually a little bit more going on. Do you think, again, remembering this church was planted around, we'll say, 64 A.D. We're now at 95 A.D. We're talking 30, 35 years of church growth. We're now no longer talking about the first generation of Christians in Ephesus. We're now possibly not even talking about the second generation of Christians in Ephesus. We're probably talking about the third generation of Christians in Ephesus. And actually what you're seeing Jesus address is a parenting and pastoring problem that you have passed the truth on and you have passed how to suffer on, but you have not passed the love of Jesus on well enough. You've passed along the formalities of the faith, but you have not fully passed on the passion of the faith. And you can see when you start thinking about the American church how a little bit scary that is. As every survey ever published right now says, we have the least church generation in American history is currently in high school. They have have no knowledge of the Bible. Absolutely no clue. As every survey ever shows right now that the college campus is more or less a pagan wasteland. That we've lost our high schoolers, we've lost our college students, and we're praying for a revival that they start coming back when they start having babies. And you can see that the, the analogy between Ephesus and the American church is not that big of a reach. A church loaded with financial resources, a church loaded with intellectual resources, a church that handled difficulty in its first 200 years extremely well. I mean, remember, that's how our country was founded. People were running from persecution so they could have a church they could worship at safely here. They handled persecution extremely well at the beginning. And now here, 10 generations later, we look around and go, we have a church that does not know how to encourage the the passion of the faith and has forgotten how to pass it on to the kids. I mean, if you really wanted to kind of be a little bit catchy with it to think about it, there's three aspects to Christianity highlighted in this passage. There's, There's the light, the truth. There's action connected to that and the love that that fuels it all. And they've lost the love that connects it together. 
And it's intriguing how Jesus, his fatherly discipline here, brotherly, I guess, but the discipline coming from the father is to say, look, if, if this problem is not corrected, I will extinguish that lampstand. Meaning, he's not saying that he's going to, all of the people who claim to be Christians is going to send them all to hell. We know that can't happen, right? God's wrath is finished on the cross. It is received by uh, faith. It's gracious, God's gracious gift to his people. When Jesus said it's finished, it's not saying he reserves some wrath and some hate for his people later. That wrath is fully satisfied. What we have here, I think, is Jesus saying, look, if the church in Ephesus does not get corrected, he will remove the church from Ephesus. That Ephesus will be turned over to the hands of the pagans and the church will be taken elsewhere. Which, interestingly enough, I wonder what's happened in Ephesus in the last however many hundred years. Has there been a great Christian presence in Ephesus? No. The prophecy was fulfilled. He took away the lampstand. You have a pagan nation there now. Which, again, gives me the kind of pit in my stomach as I think about, again, the analog with the American church to say, what happens here? Surely it couldn't happen to us. We're better, we're smarter, we're more handsome, we're prettier, we're more lovely than Christians before. It can't happen here, can it? Like it happened in England and Scotland and Germany and pretty much every other European country except for Poland and uh, Romania. (laughs) All of the the roots that we have, all of the, the spiritual tradition that we've inherited, their lampstands have largely been extinguished. That's why we support the Ildertons trying to church plant in London. You talked to you remember when he came and reported here, how's that going for them? Unbearably hard because it's a pagan nation. And unfortunately, I think we're probably staring down the barrel of that here. Now, Jesus lovingly is not one of those people who we all know that points out problems but never offers solutions. <laughs> he gives us the answer. Verse 5 after immediately saying you, the Ephesian church, have abandoned the love that you had at first, probably two generations previously. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you've fallen. It is intriguing how much the human memory is used as a tool of instruction throughout the scriptures. Think about how many different times the story of the Exodus is told in Jewish history to remind them of what God has done. And interestingly, that's the first step of restoration here is to remember how it was at first. To remember the love for Christ that has existed. To remember from where you have fallen. It's interesting, this is a tactic that marriage counselors all over the country have used for time immemorial here, as they have asked specifically for couples that are in trouble. They've said, tell me about your honeymoon. Tell me about your engagement. Tell me about how you met your spouse. Tell me about how things were when you were dating. Because it's amazing as you watch a a spouse talk about what they were like when they were dating, you can see their face light up and hope renew. It also lets the counselor know there's a real problem when they go to talk about it. It's like, it was terrible. I mean, your dating time? Yeah, it was awful. We never let you. Okay, (laughs) time out. (laughs) We've got a serious problem now that we have to fix. 
Jesus, interestingly here, is saying, look, go back and renew. Remember how it was in the past. Remember the love that you had. Remember the zeal. Remember that holy piety that you have. Remember the charity of heart. Remember the holy affection. Go back and think about it. And then repent. Look at how you were, look at how you are, and turn from it to go backwards. I think about for the American church, too, how much that probably is an appropriate thing for us to do. To look at the love, the the affection that we had for King Jesus then, and maybe the lack of warmth and love and affection for King Jesus we have now. Do we need to repent? Do we need, it's interesting here, to do the works that we did at first? It's intriguing, again, how much in Scripture this theme runs over and over and over and over again about the great danger of just things becoming formal routine. We had that in the statement of need, didn't we? The religious conservative that is praying and thanking God that they're not like the the rotten, awful, terrible excuse for a human being who is passionately asking God for mercy. The danger of just simple formality. And then taking that one step further and actually bringing it home here. I'll be absolutely candid. It's the part of the new building that terrifies me that we become a church that gets excited about progress, that gets excited about growth, that gets excited about fellowship, that gets excited about each other, and slowly and quietly and imperceptibly stops being quite so excited about Jesus. Because if that's what the new building brings, I don't want it. I'd rather preach two, I'd rather preach ten sermons a day if I have to than lose the love for King Jesus that has existed in this church for decades now. Again, heaven forbid we walk that path. And I'll be candid, I don't want to be the one who has to put my hand on the stove to find out it's hot. So what do we do? How how do we then apply this passage for this church, Christ Ridge? Well, one, I I think it comes time for us to do honest assessment. That's been something that's been done historically in Christians' lives. You listen to Puritan preachers. They constantly ask for their uh, listeners to do honest self-assessment. How is your love for Christ? You don't have to ask how his is. His has never waned, right? His has never lessened. He never loves his people any less. He's perfectly loving toward us always. God the Father, perfectly loving toward his children. The Holy Spirit, perfectly loving toward those he indwells. We don't have to ask that question. We do need to ask the self-assessment question of us, though. Have I lost that love? Has my Christianity simply become ritual? 
perfunctory, a thing that I do because I'm supposed to, and I know it's bad if I don't. Have I lost my love? Do I need to repent? Secondly, I would say it's interesting that the Ephesians church, the Ephesian church's failure primarily comes through parenting. That transmission of the faith to the next generation. And I'll be candid with you. I mean, this is one of the key parts of Christianity all throughout the scriptures. I mean, the Psalms, passing the faith on to those yet unborn, to a generation yet unborn. The idea of the covenant for you and your family, it's to the children always. One of the primary tasks of the church is to transmit the faith to the next generation. And I do have to ask that question. Are we devoting ourselves to that? I mean, there are a handful of things pastors hate preaching about. Hate talking about money. Hate talking about money. Because a large portion of what you give comes to me. It's awkward to talk about. I don't like it. But worse than talking about money is talking about your children. Because there's probably nothing that will get me fired faster than that. The great Ryle quote, my favorite. I'd rather talk to a man about his sin a thousand times than talk to him about his child's sin once. And largely because we have inflated views of our children. I'll be honest, I have that. Uh, Inflated views of their excellencies and uh, certainly obscuring views of their sins. Uh, They're much better children than I, uh, I think of them as better than maybe they are in that regard. But I do have to ask the question, though, of how, how intentionally, how aggressively, how actively do we see the purpose of our life on this planet as passing the faith to the next generation? All right, so let's go one step further, step on more toes, maybe a little bit more aggressively. Tuesday, I will have brunch with the Golden Oldies. Golden Oldies, you need to be remembered. Your task on earth right now is to pass the faith to the younger generations. And I say that thinking that you realize now that I'm not the youngest generation in this church. I'm 40. I have two generations younger than me now. Two generations younger than me in this church. That is crazy to think about. I do not think of myself as an old man, though the gray hair might, you know, mislead you on that one. So for some of you, golden oldies, passing it on to the younger generation is passing it on to me or to our college students, or to the children of the church. It's part of why pastors hate preaching on children in that regard, because it's always like, well, we need nursery workers. We do. We need Sunday school teachers. We do. Do that. Pass the faith on. It is one of the things, again, I think it's actually part of why the church in America has struggled is because we've lost the idea of an identity, a purpose to my life. Which is why Piper's ministry has been so wonderful of capturing, I exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Amen. Glory, hallelujah. I would add to that and pass it on to the next generation. 
May it be that if we have an honest self-assessment of who Christ Ridge Presbyterian Church is, that it would not be. It is an adult-only driven church. And I'll go maybe even one step further. Ooh, this is dangerous territory now, right? Think about the American church and think about how easy it is to have attendance through the roof if it is an adult-only or adult-driven activity. And the second that kids get invited, attendance plummets. It's shocking. That may not be your experience. Praise God if it's not. It is absolutely the truth in the American church today. And the problem is, I am fearful that it is a marker of a church that's lost its love and is not passing it on to those that so easily can learn from it. Well, I love, uh, it's not all doom and gloom. There's a path out of it. Repentance, remembrance, reflection, and then action. Do the works that you did at first, he says in verse 5. If you don't, consequences happen. If you do, guess what? Blessing follows. And notice how he even ends it. He doesn't end it on the, the downer of a note. Oh. Look, if you have ears, listen. Put into practice what you're hearing. The Lord is teaching his church. Why? Because... Jesus is victorious. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life. There's a word play here that's actually really clever in the Greek. Nicolaitans is a variance of the one who conquers. It's a people group that were using false teaching connected to victory. And here John is actually contrasting. Jesus is contrasting. Look, you executed, not literally, the false teachers who said a wrong understanding of victory. You know what true victory is? True victory is found in Christ. Fan to flame the love. Why? Well, because victory is found there. Because that is where Jesus resides. So go back to where we started. If we had the two angels reporting to King Jesus. May it be that they'd have a good report. And we'd be able to, when we get to glory, say, look, that's all because of King Jesus. Let's praise him. We take no credit. All glory goes to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray that you would give us remembrance and that you would give us love. We acknowledge our love for you is so weak. Forgive us and work in us. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.